Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D. Welcome to Green Street, a project of Grassroots Environmental Education. I'm your host, Patty Wood, here with my co-host, Doug. The meat-centric diet of the Western world is having a significant impact in a variety of ways. From an environmental point of view, the raising of animals for meat production in giant factory farms and concentrated animal feeding operations, also called CAFOs, contributes to air and water pollution, uses up fossil fuels and precious water reserves at an alarming rate, results in rainforest depletion, loss of habitat, and species extinction. But that's not the end of the bad news. It's what happens to us when we eat a meat-centric diet that is truly astonishing. If we knew 50 years ago what we know now, McDonald's would probably be a chain of vegetarian fast food restaurants, and the only burgers at Burger King would be veggie burgers. But that's not the way it turned out. Joining us on this edition of Green Street is one of the country's leading authorities on the relationship between diet and disease. Dr. T. Colin Campbell is Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University and author of The China Study, Startling Implications for Diet, Weight Loss, and Long-Term Health. Here's our interview with Dr. Campbell. Let's first talk a little bit about your background. You studied at MIT and Cornell. Your work has been primarily in the field of nutrition and cancer. What made this connection so interesting to you? Well, uh, my background obviously goes back a little further than that. I was raised on a dairy farm, and so I was very much um, you know, in that, that line of thinking. And when I did my graduate work at Cornell University, it was all about figuring out ways to produce animal-based protein more effectively so we could eat more of that kind of food. Mm-hmm. So I come from that background, and uh, then uh, I eventually got involved, uh, especially at Virginia Tech when I went there first, and in a program in the Philippines uh, helping to feed malnourished children or developing a program to feed malnourished children in the Philippines. And, and there the idea was to make sure they got more protein. And that's, that resonated with what I had done in my graduate research but um, unfortunately, not unfortunately, unfortunately, I guess, uh, I, I had some experiences, some observations that indicated that wasn't exactly right, that higher protein intake in the Philippines especially uh, seemed to be associated with the occurrence of uh, a certain kind of cancer in children, of all things. And uh, that piqued my interest, and then there was a study out of India showing something very similar, and that really got me in then to seek funding from NIH, which I did, that was to continue for the next 27 years, uh, all about the question concerning how, was I really turning a corner, learning something new or, or what? And we got to a point where we became aware that animal-based protein and the protein we were using from cow's milk actually turned on cancer, rather remarkably so. And uh, we could actually manipulate cancer growth in experimental animals just simply by either giving or taking away this animal-based protein. That was the seed that started it. We studied it extensively, but uh, eventually it led to you know, much broader questions concerning the role of nutrition in general you know, on cancer as well as nutrition in general on other diseases too. So when you talk about animal-based proteins, um, uh, are you talking about dairy products as well as meat products? 
And, yes, I am. And poultry as well, and fish. Right. Yep, uh, I sure am. In spite of, I mean, that was a kind of hard one to digest. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Uh, I bet. You know, I mean, I, I came from exactly the opposite point of view, personally and professionally, and to see the kind of results that we were getting and to do it over and over again uh, really kind of struck a chord, to say the least. So animal-based proteins have often been called over the past century, essentially, uh, high-quality proteins. And people like quality, of course. And so they've become the center of our plate, you know, over the years. And in reality, that whole concept of there being high-quality really refers to the fact that they stimulate uh, more rapid growth, essentially. Mm -hmm. And uh, that affects cancer as well as uh, other normal kinds of tissues. I mean... So, so what we do, we end up, we have ended up, you know, over the decades and for quite a long time now, have uh, ended up consuming far more protein than we need, and we usually get it from animal-based foods. So that was, that was the seed that got planted. Uh, but then beyond that, uh, the story beyond that was actually probably more significant even, and that was that whole plant-based foods, which tend to get displaced and taken that approach, Whole plant-based foods is really where the good stuff is. And uh, when we eat the right kind of foods, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, uh, and uh, don't add back a lot of that salt, sugar, and fat that we don't need, when we do it that way, uh, we get remarkable results. It's, it's really, really quite incredible. So let me take a couple of steps back here just to explain the um, the purpose um, of our show here. We are, uh, Doug and I are the um, executive director and associate director of Grassroots Environmental Education, which is a nonprofit that focuses on the link between um, common environmental exposures and human health. And we certainly do include food as a common exposure. We, we feel very strongly that, um, that food and the contaminants and so on, or the, um, the, the things that we find in that food um, may very well fit into that, um, that category of an environmental exposure. Um, and in, in, in the book, the excerpt, the introduction um, from the China study, um, it says, uh, should you buy food that is labeled organic to avoid pesticides and are environmental chemicals a primary cause of cancer? And so we're, you know, we, we've talked a lot about chemicals in our environment that, that actually cause certain types of cancers. Um, so I'm, I'm, where, where do you place this, um, this work that you've done in this whole big picture of exposures and, and incidents of, of cancer? Well, there's two possible answers. Uh, one is what you addressed, namely what's the effect of these foreign chemicals and nasty stuff that gets in our food? What effect does that have on, on disease production? Um, the other is, uh, you know, what effect does this the native nutrient composition of these foods have? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I make a distinction between the two. And as far as nutrient composition is concerned, that's, to me, the really major effect. In other words, foods high in protein and low in antioxidants and low in complex carbohydrates. I mean, that, that kind of recipe is a recipe for problems. Um, but on, coming back to the other point that you were just making about, you know, what effect do all these uh, foreign chemicals have? Um, and, I, and, again, I, I kind of have to wear two hats in a sense. From the scientific point of view, we don't have, much to the chagrin of a lot of people, we don't have really good, robust information uh, to show that those kind of chemicals have caused us a lot of problems. Uh, and the reason I say that is because in research, uh, the kinds of 
information we'd like to get is where, let's say, you have a group of people who have been uh, consuming just those kinds of things compared to another group of people who are not consuming those kinds of things, and then you follow them over long periods of time to see what happens. Well, that kind of study really can't be done. I mean, you can't just organize something for one group to you know, consume that kind of stuff and the other group not. So mm-hmm. the information that we actually get along those lines is kind of indirect. You know, it's based on experimental animal studies. It's based on some common sense kinds of things that we get. And so we're lacking in, in, in as I say, in the robust kinds of information we get. On the one hand, so that's my scientific answer. Personally, though, and also to base indirect evidence, I think that stuff is not good. Um, you know, we use organic foods ourselves, by the way, when we can. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, I, I mean, I, I can make quite an argument, I think, and many others in science can too, that some of that stuff that's in our food, um, you know, has the potential, you know, for some causes some problems. But in all likelihood, the problems that likely might be caused are the kind of problems that occur over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to make a connection between the cause and the effect right. over exactly. a long period right. of time. And so right. it, 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 leads, it leads us in a state, in a quandary, in a, in a sense. Uh, but I also support the idea that we ought to be cutting down on the use of that kind of stuff, reducing as much as possible. But on the other hand, I'm going to argue, though, that it's this basic nutrient composition of the foods mm-hmm. that really determine its effect on producing disease. Well, you spoke about robust research, and I think the China study certainly would qualify for that. Uh, the China study is both a, a scientific study that was done and a, and a book that you and your son wrote about diet and cancer. Let's talk about the study first, and tell us a little bit about how that came about. It's a really interesting story. Well, the first senior scientist from China, uh, I think, uh, who came, came to the United after our two countries started talking to each other way back in the early 80s, the first senior scientist from China uh, to come to the United States came to work in my lab, a certain Dr. Chen Zhongshu. Uh, he was a prominent guy, uh, did some research in China, and, and uh, he spent almost a year with us. And while he was here, we learned about his government releasing a report showing that uh, in a national survey in our country of 2,500 counties approximately, uh, this survey showed that cancer was very common in some areas and far less common in other areas. I mean, these are really, really big differences. Not the 10 or 20 percent differences we might see here, but you know, several hundredfold percent differences. Mm. Mm. And, and so uh, cancer appeared to be a local disease in China to, to a great extent. And based on other information, uh, we said, why don't we do some research? So uh, we got some uh, funding from the NIH uh, and uh, some funding from his government. Eventually we were joined by really a a super guy, um, biostatistician from the University of Oxford, Sir Richard Pito. Uh, and we got together and organized this study to go there and, and basically survey what turned out to be 130 villages uh, around the country, including those who are at the highest risk for various cancers as well as those at lowest risk. And we measured all kinds of things. We measured, took blood samples and urine samples and analyzed them for nutrient contents and viruses and everything else. And and we asked questions and, and so forth, and uh, we collected a lot of information. Uh, and I was interested in the idea of collecting a lot of information because that's the way I have learned that food really works. It's, it's a combination of things that work together at the biochemical level that really creates you know, the havoc or the problems that we have. It's not the things in isolation. That's right. It's not things in isolation, and that's one of the... Uh, that's really one of the unfortunate ways we tend to think about things too often. 
but when things were working together, as in food, as in food, uh, and then we start asking different kind of questions, you know, uh, you know, what kind of patterns do we see when we compare foods or nutrient intake with various and sundry outcomes? And how does that compare with, let's say, whether or not it's biologically plausible, essentially? And, and it's a different approach. And when we do it that way, then we learn some really substantial, make some substantial observations of what, what food can do. So is that is that what made the China study different from other studies, was your ability to kind of study things in their natural context? Yeah, to a great extent it was. Um, we, uh, we, it was a fairly large study. It was certainly the most comprehensive study ever done in the sense that we were looking at a lot of disease endpoints, about you know, four dozen different kinds of disease endpoints, as well as a lot of things I just mentioned that we were measuring in the blood and so forth. So it was a very comprehensive in that sense. Uh, but it was something else about the study, study that was unique uh, in the sense that we were working with you know, a group of people, for the most part, living in rural China, where their dietary practices were substantially different from the kind of studies that had been done before that, you know, in Western populations. In Western populations, these studies included people who were high on the food chain, so to speak. They were consuming a lot of animal-based foods. And, and uh, you know, although we see differences, we, we weren't seeing the kind of difference in Western studies that we could see in China. So China was a unique opportunity to see what happens you know, uh, what, what is the relationship between various uh, food intakes and uh, various uh, disease outcomes in a, in a group of people who are mostly consuming on the plant end of things, plant-based food end of things? But there, there were some, were there some parts of the population that were eating meat as part of their diet? Yeah, that's right. Okay. That, that, that's, that's true. Um, they were eating much less meat than we do here, uh, but even the people, except for the far north uh, and the Muslim regions, uh, they were eating much less meat uh, than we do here, even the ones on the highest end of the meat spectrum, so to speak. Mm. Uh, they were only getting about 20% of their protein from, from animal-based foods. It ranged somewhere between 0 and 20%. In this country, it's more like 50 to 90%. Wow. So you, you see, it's, it's a different universe. Yeah. Different universe. And, and, and to look at you know, relationships between diet and disease at that lower end, uh, what we learned was that Going from 20%, let's say, animal protein down to closer to zero, that's when we saw really significant, statistically significant reductions in heart disease, cancer, and, you know, the kind of disease that, that uh, kill us prematurely in this country. Yeah. And uh, so then you take that kind of analysis and that kind of information and compare it with the kind of information we have from Western studies, and all of a sudden you put it's a piece of the puzzle, you put it together, and say, wow, this is, this is really impressive. Fascinating. We're talking with Dr. T. Colin Campbell from Cornell University, and we're talking about the China study, which was a scientific study uh, and also is a book that Dr. Campbell and his son have written, and we're talking about the relationship between diet and disease. So was this a one-of-a—I've I've kind of told people, and I hope I was right, that this was a kind of a one-of-a-kind one opportunity that kind of presented itself to you, that, that these days with you know transient populations and with— you know, food being transported back and forth that might not be able to, to, you might not be able to do this same kind of research. Is, is that a correct thing to say? It is absolutely correct. I mean, this was a one-time opportunity. It surely was. And we were working with uh, uh, people in China who were uh, very stable in their residence. In other words, they lived most of their lives in the same place where they were born. Uh, we saw differences, of course, from one region to another in terms of disease and dietary practices. 
disease rates and dietary practices. And uh, we couldn't do that study in this country or most countries these days because we move all over the place and we get food from all over the places. So we're, we're pretty much of a blended society in many ways. And so it, it wasn't possible. And, and now in China, things are changing a lot, too. Uh, people are moving more so. Uh, they've got more money to buy more of the wrong kinds of things. <laughs> so uh, they, yeah. there, there's problems. Is there? Can you can you draw a, a relationship between the affluent countries and the the poorer countries in terms of their diet and the outcome on on you know the kind of diseases they end up with? I would assume you can. Yeah, you can. Uh, I mean, there are big differences, and and from many perspectives between poor and rich countries, uh, diet being one although diet is certainly one of the more significant ones. In poor countries, obviously, uh, like in rural China, for example, uh, they're consuming mostly plant-based foods, and you would think that's, uh, that's ideal. Uh, but the problem is uh, that's confounded by the fact that in these poor areas, they also have poor public health conditions. And mm-hmm. so you know, that's, uh, that causes some problems in terms of data analysis first. Secondly, although they're consuming plant-based foods in, in a place like rural China or in poor areas, um, it's kind of a monotonous kind of diet in, in many of these areas. They don't get very much variety, and uh, that's important. Uh, and so I've often made the argument, both to my Chinese colleagues as well as here in the West, that when you take the, infra- the, the best of what we know from rural China, along with the best of what we know from Western societies like the United States, mm. put the two together, we got something really pretty super. Mm-hmm. It's really quite exciting. And what, that, what I mean by that is that consuming a, a diet of whole plant-based foods, the whole vegetables, whole grains, whole legumes, and so forth, and, and just uh, using those foods as, without a lot of cooking and minimal cooking, maybe no cooking, um, and uh, not putting back, you know, the stuff like sugar and flour and oil and stuff like that. When you do it, you know, the whole plant-based food approach with good food, it, it's really amazing. I mean, we can cure heart disease now in advanced stages. Mm. And, and I say we, I'm using that liberally, my good friend at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Dr. Caldwell Esselton, has done that. Remarkable. He's done, has got some remarkable results of, with that. Dr. Mm-hmm. Dean Ornish did that to some extent, too, in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the same thing can be done with type 2 diabetics. Dr. John McDougall in the West Coast, Dr. Neil Bernard in Washington and others now have shown that you can take diabetics, especially type 2 diabetics, and you can get them off their meds within a matter of days. Mm putting them on this kind of approach. And there's, there's, there's really nothing in medicine. This is where I get really enthused these days. There's nothing in medical practice that approaches this, you know, the efficacy of this kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And I'm talking about not just preventing disease. I'm talking about actually treating ongoing disease. That's the exciting part yeah. of it. And, and do you also, would you also um, say that you can um, reverse cancer in, this, uh, in the same yes. way? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and experimentally, that's where, uh, you know, I kind of hung my hat for a number of years, and we were able to show that very clearly, and we published this research in the, in the very best journals, too, and it was funded by NIH, but we could, we could actually reverse cancer and experimentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, you know, that's not quite enough for a lot of people. It's, you know, we did an experimental animals, obviously. It doesn't apply to humans, but uh, in that particular kind of setting, we learned a lot of principles. Principles are exportable, translatable between mm-hmm. species. Mm-hmm. And so not necessarily the numbers, but the, but the principles are. And so we learned some things. You know, you could, you could actually reverse it by what turns out to be biologically plausible mechanisms. 
it really, and then we could turn it back on again, turn it off, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off. And, and one of the things that um, I've been distressed about for a long time in Western medicine, as far as cancer is concerned, is the fact that there are quite a number of people who claim, at least, and some doctors do too, that when people with cancer uh, go on this kind of diet, you know, the cancer stops, it reverses. Unfortunately, that kind of information gets dismissed because it's so-called anecdotal. Anecdotal, right. You know, and all that kind of thing. And, mm. and so I've tried to argue for some time that, you know, we have enough evidence now to justify investigating this question very carefully and very thoroughly uh, because we've got, uh, you know, compared to other kinds of hypotheses, we may want to try from time to time. So, I mean, I, I, I can't say unequivocally, you know, that people with advanced cancer, they go on this kind of diet, they're going to get rid of their cancer. I mean, we, 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 that's the kind of information we'd like to have. But I can say on the basis of really good indirect evidence and a lot of circumstantial evidence and other kinds of evidence, and also based on the studies we did in the laboratory, yes, I'm going to just stick my neck out and say this is, is, this is a really an excellent hypothesis. Mm-hmm. It's really, really it's, fascinating, it's, unbelievable. It's, well, and you know, and we we have some friends who have actually um, who have actually done this kind of um, this change uh, with their diets and have uh, have been um, very successful uh, with their um, with their disease. Um, but let me just ask you a question: when when you were doing all this research in China, and and also looking at um, some of the other work that was being done in 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 the Western world, were there certain types of plants, um, you know, and, and legumes and so on that were more beneficial than others? I mean, there's, there's a lot out there in the plant world. Is it just, you know, whole grains and whole plant base, you know, whole, you know, plants in general? I mean, are, were there, are there certain plants that have, you know, that have higher, you know, that higher, higher nutrient densities, so to speak? Yeah. Uh, at the top of my list, uh, basically, are the uh, vegetables, you know, the colored vegetables, Mm-hmm. Uh, the color that is imparted to plants, green, yellows, reds, and so forth, uh, comes from uh, chemicals in the plants that also seem to have the property of being antioxidant in nature. Mm-hmm. So, you know, colored vegetables uh, are going to be fairly rich in the antioxidants, and there are hundreds, maybe far more, of those kind of compounds that are in, in those plants. And those kind of chemicals have the ability to... Uh, inhibit oxidation, which is associated with the development of cancer, associated with the development of heart disease, and so forth. And so that's why I put those kind of vegetables at the top of my list, as as I said. Uh, We also, though, need energy, obviously. Uh, And uh, the energy can be obtained not from eating really a lot of high-fat foods or pouring oil on things, but the energy should come from the carbohydrates in these plants. And by that, I mean I'm talking about tubers, like potatoes of various kinds, uh, tavers, uh, t- potatoes and, and tomato and other kinds of tubers consumed elsewhere in the world, um, along with their, with whole grains. I mean, there there is a there is an issue about whole grains or some whole grains like wheat, for example. Um, that's an issue for some people because of the gluten problem. Uh, however, um, most people you can use them really quite well. It's a good source of starch and energy. And uh, we should use them in a whole grain form, like, you know, brown rice, not the white rice or that that kind of thing. So we've been, because of genetic background or because of already being diagnosed, they should go to zero. I I mean, that's my recommendation. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd really like to, um, to, uh, to talk to you a little bit about breast cancer. We've done a couple of shows here um, 
on Green Street about breast cancer and um, environmental contaminants that, um, you know, that may have estrogenic properties that may contribute to um, a woman's risk. Um, but we really haven't explored in, you know, in much depth uh, the, the whole issue of diet and risk of breast cancer. And I think that's really um, something that would be of interest to our to our uh, listeners here. And I see that in, in, in one of the, um, I'm looking at one of the publications here on the China Project uh, inside our living laboratory, uh, and I, I'm looking at the chart showing, or the graph showing the breast cancer rates around the world, and we have Denmark and the Netherlands and the UK and Canada and, uh, and the USA near the top here for breast cancer incidence. Um, these are all countries that have high dairy and high meat um, consumption. Is that right? Yes, it's true. Uh, and I, I think we really know more about, I'm sorry, you were going to... No, I was just going to say, and, and in, in, in China, I think that, you know, the breast cancer rate is, is much lower. Um, yeah. So maybe you can just give us a little bit of, um, of information here about, um, you know, low-risk and high-risk countries and their diets, and if you can be more specific about what they are actually eating. Sure. Um, well, you've got to go back to a little bit of basics in biochemistry. Uh, if you want. We, we collected a lot of this kind of information on the Chinese women as we went forward. Uh, we measured the age of menarche as well as the age of menopause. And uh, in China, the average age of menarche is 17 years. Here in the West is, what is it, 10, 11 years or so? Mm -hmm. In some uh, cases, younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so in, in China... The average age of menopause is around 48 years. The average age of menopause in the West is around 52. Okay? So uh, this means that the Western woman, who is at much higher risk for breast cancer, has a much longer and more protracted reproductive window or period. Right? Mm -hmm. And so during that time, there's something else that also occurs, namely, and we measured this too, uh, which is supported by other kinds of research, we measured the amount of circulating estrogen in the blood of the women, both here in Western women as well as the Chinese women. Use the same methodology, same laboratory. And it turns out that the circulating level of estrogen in the Western women is 40-50% uh, higher on average than it is in the rural Chinese woman. Estrogen in turn, you know, has been shown in a number of different studies, higher levels of circulating estrogen, higher more estrogen exposure to be associated with a greater risk of breast cancer. So you put these two ideas together, the length of the reproductive period, which is much longer in Western women, and the concentration of the estrogen in the blood, which is also higher. Put that together, it turns out that the total exposure to estrogen for the Western women is much higher than in rural China. Hmm. And that correlates beautifully, you know, with the kind of breast cancer we see. So then the question becomes, it seems to me, you know, what kind of food gener generates that problem? And it turns out that dairy especially, dairy especially, creates a problem because uh, in Western societies, uh, we have always liked dairy. And you know, I was raised on a dairy farm. I know this well. We, we, we like dairy because it grows, you know, better bones and teeth and grows, as fa you know, grows our kids faster. In other words, we, we've been hooked on this idea the fastest rate of growth is the best rate of growth. Well, the rate of growth determines when age of menarche starts to a greater extent. And so if we are feeding, mm. let's say, milk, our kids the way we do. We, we push their growth as fast as we can. And for girls, they you know, come into the reproductive years much earlier. And of course, their estrogen levels surge. 
Uh, for boys, I, I'm convinced it's much the same thing, although we don't have quite the same information, you know, along these lines. But um, milk is a milk, milk's an issue; it really is. And uh, now we have some data showing that uh, really impressive relationships between dairy consumption and breast cancer risk. Mm. And because dairy also has a major effects on causing insulin-like growth factors, one of the biomarkers we use, it, it, it tends to raise the level of risk for, let's say, cancers in general, prostate cancer. For prostate cancer in men and, and dairy, it's very impressive. The higher the dairy, the higher the prostate cancer rates. And so here's a couple of reproductive cancers, breast, prostate, also uterine cancer in women. Uh, they tend to respond to the same kind of nutritional exposures early on in life and someone along the lines that I just described for breast cancer. And so I, I think, you know, we're going to have to uh, sort of uh, take control of this excessive consumption of dairy that we've been experiencing. Mm. Fascinating. And, of course, dairy is touted as, you know, I mean, for the layman, I think dairy is associated with, you know, calcium and strong bones. And, you know, if you drink your milk, you're going to be, you're going to, you know, you're going to be fine. And then, and then we've got, you know, Sally Field on the, on the television every night telling us, we, you know, women need to take Bonivas or, or whatever it is so that they can uh, prevent bone loss. But um, actually, actually, there's something else that may be responsible for calcium loss. And I was reading a little bit about that. Can you talk, talk a little bit about what the research showed in that in that area? Yeah, it's been known for quite a long time that when we are consuming uh, animal-based foods containing, of course, animal protein, that creates a sort of an acid-like condition in our bodies. The technical term is metabolic acidosis. And so our, 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 our bodies become uh, just a little more acid. It doesn't take much, incidentally. body doesn't like that, so in order to neutralize that, uh, it draws calcium. It's a good buffer. It draws calcium from our bones and helps to neutralize that. And that's not a good deal. So foods that promote metabolic acidosis also create, you know, um, the drawing of calcium from the bones. And so the story goes that that tends to weaken bones. And so the same thing that might be involved, for example, in creating breast cancer and prostate cancer, breast cancer, of course, more significant, I guess, um, the same kind of food that creates that is the same kind of food that associates with osteoporosis. And so, for example, if, uh, and, and there's been really excellent research showing this, that the higher the animal protein intake in different countries and the higher the calcium intake in different countries, the higher the rates of osteoporosis. Mm. Big differences, too. And in rural China, for example, osteoporosis rates are far lower than here, and they don't drink any dairy. How has this information escaped our medical school's curriculum? <laughs> well, uh, this is one of the things that I, I lamented for a long time. I, I, I've had some good uh, experiences here more recently. Uh, but medical, there's not a medical school in the country that teaches nutrition. Not one. I mean, mm. they, there's, there's one school uh, that offers something like 15, 20 lectures or something. That's, not, that's really nothing uh, compared to, you know, what the the subject has to offer. So doctors have not been trained in nutrition, number one. Number two, and it's just equally bad, the leading biomedical research agency in the world is NIH, and um, who funded basically almost all of my research. Um, NIH has 27 institutes and 
centers and programs. You know, National Cancer Institute, National Heart and Lung, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. They've got 27 different institutes. There's not one that's called Institute of Nutrition. So nutrition is left out of medical training. It's left out of the biomedical research. There's really almost no emphasis given to that, except in the sort of trying to use individual nutrients, like the nutrient supplements, which don't work. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, so we have our two major sort of industries, the medical practitioner industry and the research industry, not given any voice to this question of, of uh, nutrition. It astounded, it astounded me and probably you, too, that we had this debate about health care that went on and on Absolutely. and on. Absolutely. And there wasn't any talk about food as part of the equation. There was all right. this talk about the cost of health care, but nobody wanted to talk about the fact that diet was so closely related to so many of the diseases that, that we're dealing with. Obesity and diabetes and, and you know, cancer and, and heart disease and... And it just went on and on, and we're just talking about how to how to get the drugs to these to these people that don't have the means to pay for them. Uh, just amazing, amazing. Um, what are you doing about this? <laughs> I want to know. I mean, you're in a position well, to actually do something about. I, I'm it. trying to do some things. I I I, uh, I had a uh, with my colleague Dr. Esselstyn. I had a um, op-ed piece in the San Francisco Chronicle pointing out what I just said. Um, there's something coming up in Huffington Post. I've had a couple of things on there. Mm -hmm. uh, I have also uh, given a lot of lectures since the book came out, probably more than 300, I think, mm -hmm. uh, since the book came out a little over five years ago. And recently, uh, most of my lectures now are to professional medical conferences and, and uh, medical institutions and medical schools. Uh, and I was just recently at the uh, Sloan Kettering, mm -hmm. uh, given a lecture there, as well as at the Montefiore Einstein Center. Yes. What's the, what's the response when you give a, a lecture? Is it is well, it deer in the headlights, or are they are they <laughs> you know? At, at first, uh, you know, some years ago when I was getting this opportunity, uh, a little bit, uh, you know, it was mostly silence, and uh, I, I felt like maybe some of the things I was registering was certainly registering, but not necessarily in a positive way. I mean, mm -hmm. people were a bit startled, I guess. But in the more recent times, uh, there seems to be a lot more interest, and, and I'm delighted. Um, Last year, there were two medical schools, new medical schools in the country. Uh, I mean, three new medical schools, and I was the inaugural lecturer in two of the three, uh, talking about diet and nutrition and what role it had, you know, in, in disease. And, um, and then, you know, I'm giving some keynotes now, actually, at uh, medical conferences and medical schools, uh, you know, on this question. So I, I feel like we're, we're getting closer to a tipping point, you know, in medicine. I, I know... You know, I, I don't blame the individual doctors for not knowing nutrition. I mean, it's not their fault. No. No. They, they, they went to school. They were taught what they had. And, and it's a very rigorous program, as you know. And uh, so, you know, they were obviously taught according to a certain paradigm of using drugs and chemicals to treat disease after it's already present when, and not knowing anything about nutrition. And so um, we're leaving out of the equation the most important thing of all. Yeah. We can't. Yeah. We can't agree more. Yeah. Uh, we we just can't agree more. And we, you know, we we can tell you from a, just from a public perspective that there seems to be a lot more interest. We started a, a farmers market. We have the only hundred percent organic farmers market in New York State, down here on Long Island. And you know, it was very small when we started eight years ago. And now it's uh, you know it's booming. 
it's absolutely booming. I mean, people are just really interested in, you know, only whole grains, you know, breads that, you know, that we have and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and organic vegetables. And they're, they're going off with their arms, arms full of, you know, collards and, and uh, kale and beet tops and beets. And they're, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Campbell, about the, um, you know, there's, there are some, some myths about a vegetarian diet, um, and I was going to ask you about those. Uh, a lot of people think that you have to eat red meat to get iron, um, and that iron is, is one of the reasons for, for eating a meat-based diet. you have a response to that? Yeah, first off, I tend not to talk about vegetarianism or veganism. I don't okay. use the words that much, and okay. I have a specific reason for doing so, namely... Uh, vegetarians uh, are still using a lot of dairy and eggs, and so the nutrient composition of the typical vegetarian diet is not that different from the non-vegetarian diet. Hmm. And it's actually the nutrient composition that determines, you know, disease production, production, if you will. So, you know, that being the case, you don't see that much advantage health-wise for vegetarians in a lot of studies. Uh, vegans, one could arguably say, oh, they're doing better, you know, than vegetarians, and maybe so because they're not consuming any animal-based foods on the one hand. Well, on the other hand, unfortunately, vegans, if you sort of have a, have a look at them or, or their kinds of diets, uh, they use too much of the processed foods and too much oil and stuff like that. And so the end of a diets are too high in fat, uh, you know, and, and, and so forth. And so they're not on a very good track either. Um, you can see some benefits there, too. Some of the studies show that. Some of the studies, you know, are, are somewhat questionable. So I, I don't talk about the vegetarian diets uh, that much. I, going back to your question, though, however, you know, of this long-time belief that you had to get meat in order to get iron, um, that's not necessary. That is not necessary. Based on some very reductionist kind of research, I would, I would refer to it as, uh, it turns out that uh, when we're consuming whole plant-based foods, there's plenty of iron in those foods, plenty of iron in those foods. If you... The problem is when we take out the sugar or the white flour and oil and stuff like that and make a plant-based diet that way, that's no good. And then, we, then we do need iron. We need all kinds of other things. But if you use the whole plant-based foods, the iron is not an issue. Protein is not an issue. Calcium is not an issue. Hmm. No, I mean, I know you get tons of calcium from dark, leafy green vegetables. Yes. And if that's, a, yep. if that's a staple in your diet, um, calcium is not an issue. The iron is coming from, from grains. And these yeah. vegetables? That's right. The green, uh, I mean, the spinach and mm-hmm. things like that, it's got uh, quite a lot of iron. Some people want to jump on me for making that comment. They say, oh, I, you know, spinach has oxalate. That's a compound called oxalate. That right. Buying some, some of these minerals. But uh, it turns out that in China, we measured iron uh, status, if you will, six different ways. And it was quite amazing. I, maybe, maybe this is one of the surprises I, I found that you mentioned before, and that is that uh, there wasn't an iron deficiency problem in China, you know, that was attributable to the diet. There were some iron deficiency problems maybe in uh, some of the children because of the parasites that they were experiencing. There's not an iron problem with consuming whole plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. And how, how would you say that lifestyle factors into this? Did you look at, at, at activity levels, for instance, uh, among populations? Yeah. And, and how did that pan out? What, what did that show? Well, you know, obviously physical activity is important. We all know that. And there's plenty of research to show that uh, we get some health benefits from that, being staying physically active. Um, but we, we, in China, uh, obviously the people in rural China are physically active. 
quite active compared to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, in their kind of analysis that we did, we were in a position to be able to control for physical activity, make adjustment, control for physical activity, and then look at diet alone. And, and it turned out that uh, in China, they are consuming about you know, 20 to 30% more calories than we do, which, of course, is attributable to our, mostly because of our physical activity. But we were comparing people who were at the level of office workers, not as active as the rest of the people in China. Mm-hmm. And so even those people, even those people, the least active of the Chinese, are still quite a bit more active than we are. Maybe that's not surprising, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's the way it was. Yeah. And so they're consuming more calories as a result of that. But the activity was, didn't account for all the energy they were, you know, required to consume. Because it turns out that when you're consuming a low-fat, low animal protein, you know, plant-based diet, when one is consuming that, you can afford to consume, there's good evidence for this, consume more energy, more calories, a little bit more, and not, it doesn't get turned into body fat. Uh, because the energy that is, the little extra energy that is being consumed under those conditions actually tends to get burned off as body heat rather than lay, being mm-hmm. laid down as body fat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, consuming a whole food, plant-based diet that's naturally low in fat and protein and so forth, that kind of diet actually organizes its utilization of calories in a very nice way that either stimulates more physical activity it certainly down-regulates, so to speak, uh, the amount of energy that's used for making body fat. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those for more lifestyle kinds of things, you know, when you take into consideration the effect of physical activity together with the kind of food we're consuming and maybe some other things too. It all works together really nicely. And so that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, really. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, uh, I know that you did two sets of data in China. You, 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 did, uh, uh, you, know, you did your interviews and, and collected your data, and then you went back a few, uh, years later and, and did another set. Did, did you see differences, and, and were they consistent with what you expected to find when you went back the second time? Yeah, th- we actually uh, did do that. Uh, we haven't really analyzed the data all that much yet. Uh, but the second round, what we did there, we included Taiwan in, a glisten, in, a, in addition to mainland China, mm-hmm. which is kind of an exciting idea to get the two societies to work together. <laughs> um, and so we went back to rural China and measured some of the same people we had earlier, six years before that. We included the Taiwanese, and what we did see is quite st- stood out. The Taiwanese have been a little more industrialized you know, in the recent decades in rural China. And so you can see these trends that as place gets a little more money, a little more industrialization, diets start to change. Uh, then you can start to see the diseases begin to emerge, like heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, and things like that. Now, now rural China is, of course, catching up as well. Mm. But uh, yeah, you, you can see these, this transition, you know, from a sort of a natural plant-based diet to the kind that we consume. You can see that what, what happens with respect to rising cancer rates. You've been listening to Green Street, and our guest has been Dr. T. Colin Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University and author of The China Study, Startling Implications for Diet, Weight Loss, and Long-Term Health. And that's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Thanks for listening.
Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D.